Welcome to Headliners, the podcast. This is the paper review that won't put you to sleep. You can catch us live every night from 11 on GB News with a panel of top-notch comedians going through the biggest stories hitting the next day's papers. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Headliners. I'm Mark Dolan and this is Headliners, your nightly romp through tomorrow's papers. Uh, Joining me tonight are the esteemed Simon Fanshawe OBE and the big dog himself. It's Nick Dixon. Uh, Gentlemen, great to have you with me in the studio. Both looking very summery. Simon, you've dressed up. Well, you know, I've got to say, I've got my old school tie on. Unfortunately, it's play school. Right, yes, I was wondering. Not not Eton or uh, anywhere else. Well, Eton hasn't had a great decade, if you think about Cameron and Johnson, has it really? Perhaps not. You know what? I got that big dog nickname after Boris Johnson had it. I'm thinking, is it a bad time now to have the big dog nickname? Or is it the best time? Am I taking over taking over the name? I don't Sh- see you as big dog. Do you remember I... Operation Save Big Dog, though? It didn't work out that well, oh, did it? Oh, yes. But I don't see you as big dog. I see you as a medium-sized cuddly dog. OK, I could take that. I thought that was going to be a lot worse. But I can live with that. <laughs> can and live with that? I've, I've got you down as a shih tzu. Uh, let's have a look at tomorrow's papers. And let's start with the Daily Mail, shall we? Thank you, Jake. Uh, here we go. As Starmer opens door to coalition of chaos, write the Daily Mail, voters rage over Boris Toppling. Red Wall backlash at Tory traitors. Voters in Red Wall seat who swept the Tories to a landslide election victory less than three years ago accused regicidal MPs of stabbing Boris Johnson in the back. Also, Little Rishi, the boy who would be PM. And so the uh, Instagram campaign from Rishi Sunak's people begins. The Daily Telegraph next, another uh, another photograph of Rishi Sunak, uh, formerly Chancellor, a prime ministerial hopeful, certainly photogenic, but will he win over Tory supporters? Tax cuts must wait, says Sunak, the serious candidate. Also, children told not to play in the sun during the heat wave and more on the terrible story that the former Japanese prime minister has been shot and killed At a rally, what a terrible story that is. The Guardian next, let battle begin. Rishi Sunak launches bid to be Prime Minister with up to 15 candidates expected to join the race. FT weekend, Sunak accused of treachery as he enters Tory leadership race. Johnson allies attack, blame him for triggering PM's exit. Ex-Chancellor to end fairy tales. Well, on a point of order, it was the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, who jumped before Sunak. The Daily Mirror next. Uh, A very, very sad story. Deck anguish as his brother dies. TV star Declan Donnelly, of course, one half of Anton Deck, is grieving the loss of his brother Dermot, uh, a priest who very, very sadly passed away at the young age of 55. The Times next. Don't listen to fairy tales. Sunak tells Tory voters. Tough Economic love outlined by the former Chancellor. Rishi Sunak warned Conservatives not to believe fairy tale promises of higher spending and lower taxes from his rivals as he became the first heavyweight contender to launch his leadership campaign. And grudge match Nick Kyrgios will vie to be Wimbledon champion with Novak Djokovic, who defeated Cameron Norrie of Britain in their semi final yesterday. And last but not least, the Sun newspaper. Rush to bedside as brother dies. Deck, my darling brother, has gone. Telly favourite Declan Donnelly spoke of his heartbreak yesterday 
after his priest brother had uh, sadly passed away, Father Dermot Donnelly, at the tender age, the tragic age of 55. May he rest in peace. And those are your front pages. And Nick, let's start with Saturday's Telegraph. And Rishi Sunak has thrown his rather expensive hat into the leadership ring. Yeah, absolutely. Tax cuts must wait, says Rishi Sunak, the serious Tory leadership candidate. So this is about that video he's launched. Uh, Ready for Rishi was the slogan. Probably everyone's seen the video on Twitter. He stressed his love of family. And it was a very well-produced video. He mentioned patriotism, hard work, fairness. Hard to argue with those. But it was suspiciously well-produced, some pointed out. Almost as if he had this ready about a year ago. I think he should have thrown in a bit of a topical reference, just done a quick extra voiceover at the start, saying, sad to see Boris leave. I love that reference to them's the breaks. But here's my story. And then, we, then we'd have thought it was actually recent. But so Rishi, you know, a lot of people do still rate Rishi. He's got a lot of pros, hasn't he? He's got uh, the fact that he's, uh, he has a sort of competent demeanour. Never mind what he, what he may have actually achieved. He seems like a kind of slick professional post-Blair politician. He's also a lever, which is helpful. He's, he's sort of well-known. You can, you can talk about him in first-name terms, Rishi. Uh, but I suppose some of the um, some of the, the downsides would be the non-dom scandal, the fact he's too rich, and the fact he's presided over this terrible economy, even if it wasn't his fault and he was reluctant to do a lot of it. It was because of lockdown and he didn't want to spend that much. And, of course, he, he raised national insurance, and he's more of the opinion that he doesn't want to leave debt for the next generation, so he's reluctant to do the tax cuts that many Tory members probably want. So that's, that's where it is. And he's not my pick. Of course, I, I um, picked Suella Braverman on this show weeks ago before anyone else in the media even said it. I just intuited she would run, and she's one of my favorites. I also like Steve Baker, who I have met. None of them are paying me to say this, though the, the offer is there. Steve Baker has won your heart in the course of the last two and a half years because of his opposition to lockdowns, is that right? It's opposition to lockdowns and the Plan B restrictions. It's being uh, key in getting Brexit done. He's also just a classical liberal with principles and a Christian, which I like as well. Um, why, why Suella Braverman? Suella Braverman just seems to be a genuine conservative. She released an article, sort of needlessly, really. This is why I knew she was running. She released an article about, it was sort of about trans issues in schools and how teachers didn't have to sort of play along with gender identity and all this. So she, she actually seems to have conservative values. She said that she's against woke rubbish. I don't know as much about her as Baker, but I just like the kind of things she says. And it would be good for a woman of colour to get a chance. And it would be funny that um, Labour still haven't managed to have a, a woman leader. Simon, you are a consummate performer. Not a bad description of Rishi Sunak. Yeah, he's very smooth, isn't he? Smooth Rishi. It's a sort of drink, isn't it, really? I can't wait for Nadine Doris to run, you know. I don't think that's it. She should have at least six ministries and, uh, you know, just actually screw the whole lot up. My favourite tweet, though, about this whole thing is um, Tugendat is running, mm. you know? And somebody said, if Tugendat throws his hat in the ring, does he then become Tugend? Well, he might and do. I like that. And I how like many that. hats will he be I wearing? do think, I mean, I have to disagree with you about Suella Braverman, though. I mean, you know, I mean, it is a bit like putting me in charge of the family planning clinic, isn't it? I mean, when it comes to competence, she's not top of the list, is she? Well, she's... Uh, the, I quite not, like some of her views. The attack on her is that she's inexperienced, but I, I, like, I like a lot of what she says. Maybe in the future she'll, she'll come through. Can I just say a word on Tugendhat since you mentioned him? My big problem with him is that he threw Sir Roger Scruton, our foremost conservative thinker, under the bus and sided with the new statesman, a kind of leftist rag. And... Um, he did that along with Johnny Mercer and another guy whose name always escapes me. But 
Now, the only difference is at least Hugen Hat was the only one to apologise for it, but it's still unforgivable to me. You're gloriously old, aren't you? I Thank you. It. It's like sitting next door to a button-back leather chair, of which, by the way, I'm very fond and it's quite comfortable, <laughs> but nonetheless, there's something about it. You're like a, you're like a kettle on the Arga. <laughs> no, it's lovely. He is, yes. I think I've never heard <laughs> very much described as furniture before, but I think it's an upgrade. <laughs> On to Saturday's Mirror, and the gamble seems to have paid off for Sakir Starmer, Simon. Well, yes, there's, there's Keir Starmer demands early general election and warns Tory government will fall. Uh, the thing about um, Keir Starmer is that, I mean, we have to give him credit, you know. He's, I mean, since he took over, what, he's put on about 30 points at the polls from where Labour well, was. So he's put on about it's 30 pretty, pounds. You know, no, pretty, pretty, pretty low. Pretty low bar, you know, the Corbynite bar. But yeah. nonetheless, you know, he's got it back to where he, 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 it needs to be, at least. And he's, you know, arguably got a couple of years still in election. I just am a bit desperate to him to say, not we aren't the Tories and we hate the Tories. Fine, OK, we aren't the, you know, he says Labour's not the Tories and they hate the Tories. That's all fine, if they want to say that. But I just kind of quite want to know now, let's hear what you're for. You know, I just think that the time now is to stop wallowing around in all the unpopularness of Boris Johnson. Now what you've got to do is get out with a bit of vision because there are going to be new, some new candidates going to come in, you know, and there'll be a new Prime Minister and they'll have the chance of saying, oh, I'm not Boris. So there's no point Keir Starmer saying, I'm not Boris. I think, you know, but the one thing he did say was he said he told the Tories to put their money where their mouth is. And it struck me with Boris Johnson just looking at that um, renovation of the flat Strikes me that what Boris Johnson has puts our money where his mouth is. Yes, he does. Definitely done that. You know, more seven thousand pound rug and a four and a half, th a three and a half thousand pound drinks trolley. Well, that's right. I mean, I yeah. don't know how you can spend that much on a trolley. I've got to say, I'd be more interested in the contents of the trolley. The trolley. I'd spend that on a big bottle of wine. Definitely. So I, mean, I could do that in a trip to Wadbins. But uh, Nick, uh, the issue is that uh, Beergate is no longer a scandal that hangs over the leader of the opposition. Uh, he's essentially seen his foe, Boris Johnson, go. Beer gate's no longer a problem. All bets are off. Our next prime minister, surely. Absolutely. I mean, he's, he's done well there, Starmer. I mean, the police have dealt with him very favourably compared to Boris, and especially compared to Rishi, and no-one's really sure still what Rishi did, really. But, but they've let him off. Perhaps he saw that coming because, of course, he made that big statement, I'll resign if I get a fine, obviously thinking he wouldn't get a fine. And it has proved a shrewd political move. And he's suddenly doing OK just by being ultra-boring and having no opinions. Although, as Simon points out, that's also his flaw. But he's just currently doing all right just by watching the Tories implode and having no particular opinions. I don't believe... And I think he's been talking to Blair, like I said the other day. He's got his five-point plan. He's given up on the referendum and so on. But... I don't really believe when he says that there'll be no pact with the SNP. Maybe. And he seems to be more open to a pact with the Liberal Democrats, it says here. And also, I noticed that the, the poll results are favourable for Labour, but it seems to be more about the collapse of the Tories, just like the by-election results. Mm. So does anyone actually still like Keir Starmer, or is it just that they're waiting to see what happens with this mess of the Tory party? Well, the counter-argument to the argument I was putting, and in a sense you're putting too, is that actually you don't want to come up with policies yet because what will happen is that they'll just be dismembered and taken apart. What, but I'm, I don't think I want policies. I kind of want to know on the big issues, on the balance... I want to know, kind of, you know, what is Labour's approach to technology and health going to be? What is Labour's approach going to be to inflation and, you know, the cost of living crisis? I just wouldn't mind understanding a bit about that, and I don't feel I do, really. Because we and knew... And I'm reasonably well, you know, connected We, we knew what Jeremy Corbyn believed in. We knew what Jeremy Corbyn, yes. And, and yeah. we know that would have sunk everything down below the waterline. But the thing is, it's a bit like Boris. I mean, maybe politics is like that. But we don't... I mean, Boris Johnson doesn't stand for anything, does he? But, 
Starmer's yeah. also very sus on the woke stuff. You pointed out the other night on this show that Blair was saying, move away from wokeness. And Starmer, of course, he kneeled for Black Lives Matter. He couldn't say what a woman was. Do you think he's really perceived as, as a bit too woke for the average sort of, let's say, red wall, blue wall voter? I think in the end, what you have to do in those situations is it's not about being woke or not woke and it's not about being anti-trans or pro-trans or black lives. It's not about taking sides. It's about having a negotiated way through where people can have proper conversations in the country in order to resolve quite difficult issues. So if you're going to lead, what you need to do is you need to say, look, trans women are trans women and women are women. Now how are we going to sort that out? We've got an issue with racism in the country. Is it institutional? Is it occasional? I don't know. We need to sort it out. We need to tackle that in the Met or wherever it is. It's just you want a sense of strength of purpose. That's I, what I, I want. I completely agree. And I'm not sure that, you know, those who are lamenting Boris Johnson's demise will give their vote to Keir Starmer. I'm not sure that Boris going makes Starmer necessarily any more popular. Well, you've always got a problem or, when or you've got a new telling. candidate, haven't you? I and mean, when well, you've got somebody right. new, they will say, as I said, I'm not You're Boris. Right. Especially, I think, if it's a woman, I think that Keir Starmer might struggle uh, to attack... Uh, a, a female prime minister because he's quite old school, he's quite gentlemanly, and he might struggle with that dynamic. Neil Kinnock famously struggled to attack Margaret Thatcher mm. because he was quite an old-fashioned, mm. traditional guy. And he, he actually said after mm. after he stopped being the Labour leader that that was a difficulty for him to tear into a woman on the other side of the dispatch box. Um, look, let's see if we can get a couple of stories in before the break. Uh, awful, awful story out of Japan and the former prime minister... Uh, murdered in uh, in cold blood. This features in the Times. Tell me yeah, about this. Shinzo Abe, former Japanese PM, shot dead. Horrible story. Very sad. It's, it's caught on camera. Someone did it with a homemade weapon. This person has been identified as Tatsuya Yamagami, who is a former maritime self-defence force, which is, of course, Japan's version of the Navy. And he has spoken about it quite strangely. He said it was a grudge against a specific organisation rather than political per se, but he hasn't cited which organisation, and the police are not sure if that's just basically nonsense. So it's not totally clear what his motive was. And, of course, um, Abe is a beloved figure in Japan. He served from 2006 to 2007, and again from 2012 to 2020. So it's very sad. And a very sour note as well, NPR tweeted calling him a divisive arch-conservative, which went down so badly and was thought to be so disrespectful, they deleted it. And this is famously... You know, this is the kind of thing... They do, wasn't it? The Washington Post famously posted about an ISIS terrorist that he was an austere religious scholar, whereas this uh, Japan's, you know, respected pri former prime minister is divisive arch-conservative. So it's very sad that politics got involved. But, yeah, tragic story. I remember when John Lennon died and the Workers' Revolutionary Communist Party newspaper, whatever it's called, you know, The People, and it was Manhattan millionaire shot. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Always know, of all headlines. Shocking stuff. Uh, well, look, how about uh, this in the Telegraph, Simon? <laughs> the Met Police, the biggest police force in the country, have a new boss. They do have a new boss. Interesting, I think, this story. Well, one thing interesting is that he's not an outsider, he's an insider. So he's been in the Met before and he was, he was head of counterterrorism and he was uh, uh, during the famous, you know, July 7 and all that. Um, it's quite an interesting point. I just thought this article makes the point in the Telegraph that this, the, the Met's now under special measures, which means that they're arguing or saying that actually what you can come in and say actually turns out it's not bad apples. It's the whole barrel. Actually, this is root and branch reform. If he can do that. I just looked up the confidence figures. 
The Met now has the lowest negative confidence figures that they've, that they've had since Ipsos Mori. I think it's Ipsos Mori started doing it. I mean, the, 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 the people who trust the Met against people who don't, it's 33, 42 now. And if you look at 18 to 25-year-olds, it's 23, 51%. I mean, that is just appalling if you think of it that way. And I mean, you know, when you look at the safety of women and you look at uh, uh, the failure to police on the ground, you know, and use technology differently and so on and so forth. Just that lack of trust. So if you can't do that, well, then he's going to go very quickly. But I do think if you're pretty Patel and the government has a 73% lack of trust and the Met has a 42% lack of trust and you're pretty Patel and you're a member of the government and you're appointed the Met Commissioner, you kind of got no trust at all. There's sort of two people in Essex who trust you. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's not very inspiring of public confidence. Can I just say my, a couple of concerns about this uh, Mark Rowley? He, he may be OK, but he, 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 was, uh, le- he was leader of counterterrorism when we had five major attacks. And this earned him the unofficial title of the Met's reassurer in chief, which worries me a little bit. And the other thing that worried me slightly is that he, he had an article saying the UK is underestimating the risk of far-right extremism. Now, I don't say there's no risk of such a thing, but I always think when someone goes out of the way to say that, when Islamist extremism is obviously a much bigger problem, apparently we're monitoring about 22,000 potential Islamic terrorists. The Independent even said it was 25,000 in 2017. So that worries me a little bit, because when someone chooses to emphasise that, I think, is he making a sort of political, basically a lefty political statement, rather than, you know, that's, what, that's, that that's my concern. That would be a concern. Uh, how about this before the break? Saturday's Guardian and Boris and Kerry are scouting for new party venues, Nick. Mm-hmm. Boris and Kerry Johnson to move wedding party venue for Checkers. So, yes, there was all this speculation. Are they going to have this party at Checkers? It was a big distraction. They've managed to just say we're just going to move it and deal with it, much in the way that Boris probably should have dealt with the, the Chris Pincher scandal, and he might still be there. But So everyone was going on about this on Twitter, but... Now, people said, oh, he was just trying to delay his departure from number 10 by having this party at Chequers, but, of course, sources have denied that was ever the case. I tried to find out if um, Chequers is actually taxpayers' money or if it's... A, some people say it's not taxpayers' money because it's a charity, but it seems it is, there is an element of taxpayers' money. People worried that we were going to be funding this. But anyway, it's moving to a, an unknown other location and it's not happening anyway. So uh, not much of a story. I would just add that I think Boris's big uh, mistake was siding with Carrie over Cummings. Do you know what I mean? There is a phrase, I won't use it on the TV, but it's bros before something or other. And he should have stuck with that and he'd still be there now. He lost all his friends, Mark. He sided with Carrie. He went to, um, Simon loves that, he went to the green lefty side and that's where he lost it, I think. I very much hope that his wedding vows to Carrie are more long-term and he sticks to them better than he did to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Welcome back to Headliners, a first look at tomorrow's papers. I'm Mark Dolan, and with me are the double comedic threat of Simon Fanshawe and Nick Dixon. Uh, Let's have a look at Wimbledon now, Saturday's Guardian, and Cameron Dorries has carried on the great British summer tradition of crashing out of a major tournament in the semi-finals. Yes, but to be fair, had he won, he would have been the first... Brit in, the, in, in a Wimbledon men's final since 2016, which, of course, you remember was uh, Andy Murray. But I watched this match this afternoon. What you have to remember is this guy is 20-whatever he is, 26 or something. You know, he at least got one set and several breaks to serve. 
Djokovic is a 20 times Grand Slam champion. I mean, this was an astonishing kind of unequal match, and I watched it. And the thing about Dory Norrie is that he does play some great tennis. I'm a huge tennis fan. I scream at the television. I get incredibly excited. It makes me very, very tense, and I love it. And I really, I thought he played some really exciting tennis. And it was great to watch him up against somebody who really, you know, that classic cliche about things is it raises your game when you play somebody like that. I think it was, a, it was an exciting match, even though he was never going to win it. So uh, has, has Djokovic put the whole vaccine drama behind him, do you think? He's, he's weird, Djokovic, and the crowd is always weird with him because they love Cameron this afternoon and everybody. And then Djokovic almost gets a few boos from people still. And it's, mm. he is very peculiar person. He'll never be loved like Nadal's loved or Federer's loved. You know, he doesn't have that charm. I don't think the vaccine thing sticks much because I think his playing overwhelms everything. But just as a personality, I think people just find him... <laughs> A bit difficult. Well, you know, got no charm. I love Djokovic. Speaking of which, Nick Dixon. Yeah, well, I'm a big tennis fan as well. Played a lot of tennis. Surprisingly, I'm quite good. Do you? At, yeah, I'm quite good. At, I know it's, people find it surprising. My serve's not great. Table tennis. Ground strokes are good. No, no, I play a lot of tennis, but I've stopped e watching FIFA. it. I've stopped watching it as much recently. But I did. Now, the only problem is I always support the, the British player, of course, a big Murray fan. The only time I didn't was Goran Ivanovic versus Henman because I was such a big Goran fan, and it's an individual sport, so I justified it. And this one is tricky for me because I'm such a big Djokovic fan because of his vaccine stance, because he was of his brave anti-vaccine stance. I believe he still can't play in the US Open or the Australian. He was treated appallingly by Australia, which you'll remember, Mark. Yeah. And so now I find myself in a strange culture war versus country battle. Who do I support, the, the British player or the culture warrior Djokovic? And I had the same problem with England the other day or a few weeks ago when they were kneeling, ridiculously, in my opinion, I mean, they can if they want, versus Hungary. And I thought, do, do I support Hungary? So I think a lot of us now have these sort of culture war dilemmas. You hear there's more buttons to the back of the chair. Though. Oh, yes, I, I do. Going I can definitely hear that. <laughs> my mum, talking about playing, playing uh, Hungary, my mum and dad used to live opposite someone who was a, a genuinely an Austro-Hungarian prince. Wow. And somebody once asked him whether he was going to go to the Austria-Hungary match, and he said, yes, who are we playing? <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant, isn't it? Can I say one thing? I was very against that kneeling at first because I didn't like the organisation BLM for what they stood for. Then I thought, OK, the players just think it's an anti-racism gesture. Oh, fair enough. I'll support a team for the Euros, which I you know, obviously did. But then people, we're the only team still doing it, pretty much. I just wanted to know what you thought, Simon, because you're sort of quite woke, aren't you? But how do you feel about the, about the kneeling? He's fighting back. He's fighting back. How do I feel about the kneeling? I am not a fan of Black Lives Matters in terms of its ideological background because, well, whatever. Uh, but I think, you know, what they did was create a sort of urgency around racism and they really added to that. And so I think in that sense, the whole thing, I mean, when Kaepernick took the knee, I just thought it was a very powerful gesture. So I liked it. Okay. I thought it was extraordinary. I hate I it. Think but the problem, <laughs> but the, what I was going to go on and say okay. is the problem with those gestures, I thought he was extraordinarily brave. He did risk his career potentially doing it. He suffered backlash for it. But actually what troubles me is when it then just becomes rote, that people just do it. It's a bit like wearing poppies, kneeling, taking the knee, all these things. They just become habitual. At that point, they seem to they me to lose a little signal. bit of their power. They become virtue signalling at that point. Yeah, they become virtual vice signaling. Either okay. way, you can have it both so, ends. So but yes. So if it's spontaneous, it's organic, uh, it's unexpected. That's one thing. Uh, if there's so. pressure to do it, like compelled speech, then it goes. Well, that's the, the other thing is that then people are in a position where if they don't actually agree with it, they're not really. It's difficult to not do it. And I think at that point, it sort of becomes it defeats its purpose to some yeah. extent. I also would rather people in their daily lives fought racism and tried to tackle yes. racism rather than yeah. just saying actually hello. Yeah, I've, I've, I've taken the knee, I've done my bit, my conscience is clear. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah, well, I totally agree with that. Um, how about Saturday's Times and Twitter? Doesn't seem like a great investment right now, Nick. Yes, Twitter shares take hit as Musk deal in jeopardy. So this is the Elon Musk takeover bid, 44 billion takeover bid that we all want to see go through. But Twitter, is, um, Twitter say, so there's a big debate about bots, basically. How many fake bot accounts are on Twitter? And Elon Musk has been asking Twitter this. And some say he's using it just to push down the price by claiming they've got a bot problem. Twitter claimed 5% of accounts are inauthentic. Musk claims it's more like 20%. So that, that is raging on. Now, if this deal does fall through, Trump... Um, Trump. <laughs> Musk... <laughs> Freudian slip of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in my head, he's the new Trump. Musk will have to pay one billion uh, termination fee, which will sting a bit. And people... Have, there's a, Someone's analysed this at a uh, Wedbush Securities, and he said there's a 60% of the deal happening. So the deal's in trouble, and he says it'll be at a lower price if it does happen. So it's a bit of a, a bit disappointing because a lot of us are really hoping for Trump slash Musk to take over Twitter because... You've got things like Jordan Peterson with 2.8 million followers being suspended for dead naming Elliot Page. And then uh, Dave Rubin commented on it. He got suspended. They're going crazy with the suspensions. Babylon B is still suspended. Uh, Breaking 9-11 got suspended the other day, which is an account that just posts news, just pure news. So they got suspended. So I think it's Twitter staff going mad, worrying about Musk coming in, thinking, let's suspend everyone while we still can. I really hope this deal goes through because it will be a good thing for free speech. But I'm a bit worried that it's it's Does falling apart. Does he have any prospect of making any money from Twitter if he does buy it? Well, he has talked about that. It, it was a very funny thing. He's talked about, let's make it profitable. Let's do a subscriber thing. And there's a, there's a funny meeting was released on those Zoom calls where Musk is sort of talking about things like making profit. And, you know, and it's a new concept to some of the people at Twitter. Uh, moving on, Elon Musk, the richest man on earth, is known for many things. Among them is being profligate with his seed. It turns out that's just what high-status men do, Simon. Well, it is this peculiar story in The Telegraph. Why do so many men father mega broods, is the, is the story. I would rephrase that, which, because they list Mick Jagger, Elon Musk, uh, uh, Rod Stewart um, and a few others. And I would rephrase that. So why do so many rich millionaire and rock star men father, you know, father mega broods? And to be honest, it's a bit like that question about dogs and their, you know, why do dogs lick their whatnots? Well, because they can. And the thing about, <laughs> if, you, if you're a billionaire, I mean, number one, one remembers Debbie Whatnot's question, uh, uh, the question of Debbie McGee, what attracted you to the millionaire Paul Daniels? So clearly there's available people who want to have children and rich men are a good way of doing that if you like them, and uh, which I don't particularly. But, uh, uh, but uh, also the rich men, you know, move on. They have younger wives and all these kind of stuff. But Elon Musk, I mean, he's just had a child with one of his top execs, this woman called Siobhan Zillis, and she's 36. He previously had a relationship with Grimes, who apparently has a real name, Claire Boucher, who is a Canadian singer of some sort. With an, uh, the child he had with Grimes is called Exa Dark Sidereal. I don't know how I'm pronouncing that. My favourite detergent, by the way, really but, gets those whites white. <laughs> it really does. And his first, he's got a son already called XAEA-12, who's oddly enough, whose, you know, nickname is X. Yeah. You know, well, and when you, you just think, stop crucifying these children. I mean, what's going to happen at school to X and X are dark sidereal? Well, doesn't the X just mean 10? Because when you get to so many children, you have to start just naming them, it numbering is. them, sorry. <laughs> Roman <laughs> numerals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Musk um, one, Musk two, Musk yeah. three. Yes. Um, I mean, it just seems to me a bit of a non-story, this. I mean, rich men always father lots of children. But, but uh, Nick, are you careless with your seed? Uh, no, I'm very, very careful. Almost too careful with it, Mark. But, but this is where I... Um, There's no willing receptacles, is that your point? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a choice. But, um, <laughs> the, um, 
What's interesting about the story to me is that Musk has been famously pro-high birth rates, whereas many of our sort of elite billionaire people have this Malthusian idea that we, there's too many people, we need to thin the herd. Musk has this idea that we're not going to have enough people to sustain our societies. So he goes against the grain. And he tweeted just yesterday, I hope you have big families and congrats to those who already do. So he is at least walking the walk because he's actually doing what he says. Well, yeah, I mean, in our house, he's the new Barry White because whenever we hear his voice, we make sweet love. <laughs> <laughs> and why not? Fascinating. And on that autobiographical note, in a day of cataclysmic news stories, this one from Saturday's Guardian is going to reverberate around the aisles of Waitrose. Simon, very bad news for middle-class people. The hummus supplies are dipping as weather in Ukraine war cause a chickpea shortage. Can you Count imagine? your chickpeas. Where I live, in, <laughs> in Brighton, where I live, I mean, can you imagine? I remember one day being I don't think you struggle being a gay man in Brighton. Or I know, it's terribly difficult. We have some heterosexual people on our road, actually, and they are absolutely lovely. Don't, you know, they don't go out and hold hands and all that stuff. <laughs> um, but you know, panic in Brighton, as you can imagine, you know, when, when there's no mascarpone where we live, you know, uh, people shut themselves away in lockdown. Uh, but what, one of the things that I loved about this story is that there's this kind of insight into a niche world. Because you suddenly find yourself uh, reading quotes from the Global Pulse Confederation. There's somebody called Navneet Singh Chahabra here, the director of Sri Sheila International, a global chickpea trader and brokerage firm. There's actually a trader and brokerage firm that deals explicitly and expressly. Who needs chickpeas. gold? Who needs any of this? I mean, the League of Tamarind Seeds, you know, they're up there. The International Split Pea and a Dookie Bean Confederation. And there was another one, Global Garlic Council. I'm just making these up. Because they sound smelly. Imagine their AGM. Can you imagine Oof. their AGM? You brush your teeth. Can you imagine, to be honest, can you imagine the, the, the global chickpea trader and brokerage firm's AGM? I mean, when we're talking for <laughs> But it is, it, the, the thing that's, of course, interesting about this and the reason that actually it's important is twofold. Number one, Chickpeas and pulses are an incredibly important source of protein in uh, India and uh, the subcontinent. So this is serious stuff for them. We joke about it, think it's waitress and middle class. Yeah. It's serious. Them. And the other thing, of course, it relates to Ukraine and, and Russia. And Russia is one of the big exporters of pulses and chickpeas. And Ukraine, of course, is one of the, you know... India uh, is a largely vegetarian country. Exactly. The people of India need chickpeas. But what I do like, too, is there's a certain amount of protectionism going on here, which is Turkey has issued an export ban on the chickpea. I love that. No chickpeas may leave Turkey. No, well, quite rightly. A chickpea embargo. Who knew? Welcome to Bonkers 2022. I am literally Mark Dolan. Welcome back to Headliners, a first look at tomorrow's papers in the company always of the elite of British comedy tonight, Simon Fanshawe and Nick Dixon. We kick off uh, part three <laughs> with the independence and a warning from Ofsted, Nick. Yeah, teachers must not be campaigners in the classroom, says Ofsted chief. I mean, what a good idea. Will it actually happen with all these lefty teachers? <laughs> I don't know. I knew Simon would like that. Um, you know, will it actually happen? If it happens, great. Now, the point is that they don't have to be impartial uh, necessarily, but they they do have to be somewhat impartial and not just be campaigners. So, but the my, I'm a bit bothered by the examples because they're saying here it does not mean being neutral on every issue. Uh, teachers should still make clear that racism was wrong and illegal. Fine, but then it says and that climate change was supported by evidence. So it's like we already in there revealing we can't have a climate debate. We're claiming it's settled science. So they completely undermine their their point immediately. They're saying. 
hey, teachers should be neutral, it shouldn't be campaigning, but climate change is definitely happening, yeah. be, and be if, afraid. And if there's another wave of COVID, teachers will be telling you that masks and social distancing saves lives. If there are any Again, lessons, Mark. all up for debate. If there are any lessons, because you'll probably be in your house learning on Zoom uh, and barely listening. But yeah, exactly. There are certain issues, sort of completely on the mind themselves. This comes from Amanda Spielman, who's an offset chief. But that's where my concern is. I do understand that, the, uh, absolutely, so I absolutely back the idea, but I question whether it's actually going to happen. Yes, uh, the fact that wokeism is being taught in our institutions, in schools, in university, does that mean that it will never be defeated, Nick? That is my concern, is that how far wokeness is in all our institutions. The schools and universities are, are too, there seems to be practically any institution you can name, the police, we could go through them. And that is my concern, how do we, how do we root it out? Halifax. Halifax, it's everywhere now. Yeah, I know. Because there is this idea, if you're if you're concerned about you know extreme political correctness, Simon, that somehow the truth will out, that it's a phase, and and that we, it'll sort of wash through society. I'm now not so sure. I've been caught in the in the jaws of a right wing alligator. Mark's a lefty. He's a Remainer. I think the thing is that that that. So I spend a lot of time dealing with this in my uh, other bit of my work, and you know what fundamentally I think you have to ask schools is. What are you for? What are you supposed to be there for? And I like her phrase, ex teachers are expert guides through disputed territory. It seems to me that the point of schools, the point of universities and all those things is to exchange ideas, to learn the exchange of ideas. And when you say, shall we get out of it? The only way we'll get out of it is when we say to people, actually, there is a discussion here. There is an exchange of ideas to be had here. You cannot dismiss people for having those views. You can argue with those views, but you can't dismiss people for having them, which is what happens at the moment. So what happens at the moment, I think, is that people define the crime, uh, find you guilty and punish you in the single sentence. Mm. You're a sexist, you're a homophobe, whatever. The minute that's said, immediately you're being, that, that sentence moves you over a line where apparently your views are unacceptable. What is interesting, I think, is if you look at some of the legal challenges on that. I mean, the Forstater case this week was interesting. That was somebody who was dismissed from or not renewed, a contract is not renewed because of the language that they used in relation to their belief that sex is immutable. Well, the courts say, no, that is a protected belief and actually you can express it as you will. So I think there's a realisation now that actually the exchange of ideas lies at the heart of who we are and what we do. Yes. And that is in the end how we'll, I think, get to the stage where we'll be able to discuss it better. But then the problem is that teachers have the, now, some teachers have these orthodoxies, these truths, which are, in fact, debatable. But I think, yeah. they, I think it happens on both sides, though, doesn't it? I mean, some people will sit there, I mean, we'll get to the National Trust in a minute, but some people will sit there and, and say, you know, you've got, this is British history. Well, actually, British history is completely disputed. I, I yeah. think we need our yeah. own schools, Mark, as the answer to your earlier question. We need to just make our own schools, non-woke schools. I like the Michaela Community School looks really good. Stuff like that, really strict, old-school school. And what bothers me as well is you can perhaps go to a, a Christian school or you can perhaps find a grammar or public school, but if you, if you go to the state schools, they're the most woke, and that's not fair to people uh, who can't afford it. Let's stay on woke and the National Trust, Simon, this in The Times. This is The Times, and this is because there is a new chairman of the National Trust, and the story says, modern views cannot eclipse history. And he's got a terrific quote. He says, it's important to make these buildings in their context more interesting to more people, added to which we're all entitled to ask different questions about the past. A new view, however, does not supersede its 
predecessors. Yeah. Each is another thread in the tapestry of our understanding, adding colour, richness and depth to the whole. There's a brilliant book, uh, I think, by a, a journalist called Satnam Sanghera, um, called Empire Land. Right. And what I think is wonderful about the book is he explains and analyses the way in which empire absolutely is in every corner of, of British life, culturally, the language, the food, the, the people that were here, all of that. And he explores all of that. And there's a brilliant section in the middle. He's a Sikh. I don't know how many generations I think his parents came. Um, and there's a brilliant section in the middle where he just talks about how much he loves being British. And he weaves a complex story about the notion of empire and just says, look, empire right or wrong, stupid question. Yeah. Just why are you asking that question? It's in our history. It's part of what we do. And there are things to absolutely criticise about it. And it produces elements of racism, but it's also produced things that are extraordinary. And he weaves a really interesting story. So, I'm more, and I, so I think this is a really beautiful way to put it. Each is another thread in the tapestry of our understanding. Okay. Yeah, well, just to I return agree. to the, the, the issue of the National Trust, it is another sort of institution that's gone woke, as we just discussed. The former chairman, Tim Parker, described Black Lives Matter as a human rights movement with no party political affiliations. Well, OK, maybe no party political affiliation, but it certainly has political affiliations. But the new guy uh, is, is seen as a safe pair of hands. He won't do that. But he's, also, but he's already said fighting climate change is also a priority. So I always get a red flag when I see that. Not that we, there is no problem with the climate, but when you just hear that, you just th I just hear ideology again. Let's it could just try, be me. Let's try and not use the word woke and be specific about what we actually no, mean we, when we say that point. Simon, on GB News, we have to use it a certain amount of times per hour. There's, there's a, a quota, quota system. Oh, there's yeah, a quota system. Yeah. I knew there was some kind no, of but You're right, system. because the problem is most people don't even know what that word yeah, means. Yeah, and, and it's they one of those now. words now that you just throw around as if I, it I means know. I don't know what. So I agree. let's try and not use it. Let's agree not to use it. It means everything evil. No, and I think you raise a good point. I mean, I think it equates to extreme political correctness, but there are other permutations too. Yeah, so, but uh, all those, I mean, they're all cliches. Really interesting on. stuff. Uh, well, look, let's move on to Saturday's Times and one to worry the digestive tracts of any mere mortal, Nick. Yes, another very important story. Chilly reception for chai cream ice cream that gas stove won't melt. So this is a Chinese ice cream that proves to be fire resistant, which is the main thing <laughs> I, I look for in an ice cream. That and what are its views on uh, Israel? Yeah. That's a Ben and Jerry's reference there, guys. But, Nicely um, done. Just came into my Topical. head. Pretty good. Another, so apparently you can, uh, it doesn't melt for 50 minutes at temperatures of 31 degrees C. <laughs> and with the Chinese, now not to diss the Chinese, but we have covered them quite a few times with things like Huawei or things like, is TikTok spying on us? There was one the other day, we're using Chinese CCTV and only the UK should be spying on the UK, not China. My point is, is this ice cream spying on us, perhaps? And that, could that be its real purpose? Because it doesn't seem to function as ice cream. This story is just inherently funny, isn't it? I mean, there's another bit where the company that makes this product came out and said, we don't think it's scientific to judge an ice cream bar's quality by roasting it. Right. We, they need to scientifically <laughs> know if it's quote. melting, but we can all see it's melting. Yeah, they claim the main components are milk, single cream, coconut pop. They've made this sort of defence of it, but the, the evidence is there. Yeah, but the key thing apparently is that the, the, it's got very high solid content and very low liquid content. That's, the, that's what makes it unmeltable. And I was just oh, thinking one right? of the odd things is, in, com in contrast, by the way, to us, we adult men are 60% water, you know. A lettuce is 75% water, and, you know. And lefties are more like 70 70, 80%. I think it doesn't matter left or right, we'll all end up <laughs> life at the bottom of the fridge like a lettuce that's been left to rot. Fair enough. Bit, bit bleak. And on that poetic note, <laughs> Saturday's Express, and this one's for the Strictly fans, Simon. Ah, oh, yes. 
the oh, Shasta. Have you been asked to do that, by the way? Oh, it's somewhere here, but that's oh, here we go. Some, I've got it down as the Times. Actually. Have they been Strictly in touch? Judge Shirley Ballas. Yeah. Hints that the show could have a gender-neutral couple. I would be happy to talk about this story if somebody would please explain to me <laughs> what gender-neutral means. Yes. Because I don't understand. Because later on in the story, it says. The producer oversaw, of which you remember, two same-sex pairings, Nicola Adams and Katja Jones, and then John Waite and Johannes Radebe. But um, if that's how you pronounce his name. And I understand what same-sex attracted is and same-sex couples are because uh, I'm one half of one. So I get that and I understand that. I don't know what we mean when you say you're not... And, and what's amazing is if you don't know that, who does? Because your job is pretty much to know these things. Yes. I see it as anyway. Maybe I'm mischaracterising your job, but, I mean, I'm not expected to know that kind of thing. But what, I understand gender non-conforming. I get that. So if you look at who's that lovely bloke, the black actor who's in Pose, who turns up at the Oscars in those amazing kind of gowns, Billy Porter. Right. You know, he's a bloke who likes to wear frocks. Well, that's I get that. That's fantastic. And when you look, you know, that's a brilliant. But I don't understand what gender. I genuinely don't understand well, what. Isn't, what, it, what, isn't what, it somebody that doesn't wish to identify as male or female? Yes, but the point about identifying as male or female is that that's then based on this notion of a feeling, and then it becomes entirely circular because you say, "What does it feel like to be a woman?" And they say, "Well, it feels like being a woman." You go, "Yeah, okay. Well, what's a woman then?" And they say, "Well, it, it's when you feel like a woman." Yeah, the circular argument. or a man, and it's terribly circular. And I, uh, the thing is that you know, when I was young and gay and doing all that, it was the Brixton fairies and the Sisters Perpetual indulgence and all that lot and you know they gender as the word was yeah, ruined all the fun but can i just say they brought they're thinking of doing this because the bbc lists 150 different genders to its staff which won't really surprise anyone will it i mean the bbc sounds a bit like disney you, you must remember those disney's leaked zoom calls where an executive producer described herself as a biromantic asexual while we're on this theme which kind of means if you think about it that she's into both but into not having sex with it with either Gender, as far as I can see, bi-romance. So anyway, it's like the Woody Allen joke, isn't it? Him being a Protestant, uh, him being a Jew, and her being a Protestant, not knowing which religion not to bring the not, kids yeah, up in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that would do it. The Times now and say sweet dreams to the art of the lullaby, Nick. Yeah. Now this is. It turns out young parents don't know lullabies, and this shocked me as someone who, of course, as Simon's characterised as, wants to go back to the distant past. Um, the fact that sixty percent of millennial parents didn't uh, could only sing. Oh, sorry, they could only sing half. No, only half could sing Humpty Dumpty, which shocked me. I was like, it's not very long. Is it? I, I checked. I knew all the lyrics. I was like, is there an extra verse I don't know about? Is it like a folk song? Like the is National it... Anthem. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's not that I just knew it all. Bar Bar Black Sheep, they didn't know, which I always liked that song. I always thought it was a bit strange, one for the dame. It suddenly like, took on a New York gangster vibe there, like dames. But anyway, it has the list here. 55% know Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, 53% Bar Bar Black Sheep, and so on. And it's, it's, a, it's a shocking disgrace, Mark. I would make it compulsory. Oh, and the bit that really annoyed me, a tenth of millennial parents reported not singing lullabies to their children as they had a terrible singing voice or felt awkward. I mean, how narcissistic is that? You'll feel awkward in front of your one-year-old singing. Come on. I'm outraged. <laughs> it's beautiful to watch. You'll Honestly. have to get off that fence. You really will. Uh, let's have a look at this story. Saturday's Mail and onto one of Nick Dixon's strong suits, intergalactic physics. Yes. Regale us with your Thank insights, you very much. Nick. Yes, well, I said I didn't really understand this story and they were dissing my IQ. And then I said I got 137 in a, in a mental death, which is apparently one point below Herman Goering. But I digress. <laughs> Aliens could be using quantum communication to send messages across interstellar space, math math mathematical models suggest. I can say that word. So they're saying that ET can indeed phone home. And the idea is that quantum particles are fragile and could easily break down. But it's been determined that the quanta could survive traveling hundreds of thousands of light years in these new mathematical models. So it's incredibly significant, Mark, and I, and I understand it on a deep level. 
Of course you do. Don't you think that these scientists could perhaps work on getting a signal in the middle of Sussex? Good point. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that help? I agree. Get the old broadband going uh, by the seaside. Uh, let's now have, have a, a look. look at this one, which fascinates me. More communicating over vast distances from the express, Simon. Yeah, this is fantastic. There's the NASA scientist in tears as the James Webb telescope captures the deepest ever glimpse of the universe. Ooh. This is a telescope, which is the most powerful telescope ever, and it's the successor to the Hubble. Remember the Hubble observatory? Of course I do. And the marvellous thing I remember about the Hubble, do you remember when they first put it up there, they got the lenses wrong? And they had to get, you yes. realise the Hubble telescope was up in space <laughs> doing like that, like your granny tried to watch the television. And, um, but this James Webb thing is extraordinary. And they've managed to take these deep, 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 deep photographs. And the thing is, this is only, you know, the beginning because it's not fully operational yet. And there's I a did, photo there. Look at that. But I, oh, isn't it wonderful? But I did, I did find out who James Webb was because I'm intrigued who would have this telescope named after him. And he was the guy who was the administrator of NASA when they started the Apollo program. So 1961-68, Apollo went on to 72, you'll remember. And that's uh, who they named it after. And he was, um, well, he was supposed to have been involved in the Lavender Scare, which was the famous sacking of 300 gay federal employees in the late 50s and 60s. But there's no evidence. So there was some controversy over whether they should keep calling it the James Webb telescope and then they decided in the end they were going to because there was no evidence. It's quite interesting. I enjoyed reading that story for yeah. the backstory. I mean, is there any great advantage to exploring space? <laughs> I just think it's wonderful. Is it just fun? Can it's we be big, honest about that? I, it's just such a massive question to just suddenly ask Simon. Space, worth space, it? Space, worth I like, it? I like Elon Musk's uh, aspiration to get onto Mars. I, I just think it... I like everything Musk does, and he's very pro-human. He thinks it will give us a great goal. One thing about it, it can unify people. If we've got a singular goal, like get to Mars or destroy the aliens, that could unify us with our... With I tell our you, too, rift. we are of the generation. We're the first generation, I think, that's right, that saw Earth from space. Mm. That picture, which we are very familiar with, that I like because it reminds you that sophisticated and brilliant and wonderful as we are, <laughs> as a planet and as humans, actually we're only part of a bigger thing, and do, I like that. Do you know what I love about that? The, the astronauts that went up were known for being very Christian, and, and people said to them, oh, when you saw that, did that not make you question everything? It actually made them just more religious, seeing the magnificence of it. There you go. Managed there you to go. work in a bit of pro-Christian. Yeah. That's if they even went, which, of course, lots, lots of people on my Twitter say they didn't. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they were <laughs> working a bit of God. Your mates. They always do that. Um, let's go to The Guardian. And you'd think the ocean would be one of the last places for serenity on Earth, but uh, not if you're a whale, Simon. Well, it turns out one deep-sea mine could send noise 500 kilometres across the ocean. One thing I discovered from this is that uh, noise travels faster through water than it does through air, which I didn't know. That. Mm. So if you have a mine and they're planning to mine in this place called the Clarion the Clarion-Clipperton zone, which is between Mexico and Hawaii, and they're doing it because uh, there are mineral-rich lumps known as polymetallic nodules, and I imagine if the noise is that loud yes. for the fish, they will be heavy metallic nodules. <laughs> yes, sound like. And the fish, of course, poor fish can't put their hands, fins over their ears, but it turns out the fish have got internal ears, and they navigate by vibrations, so these things will throw them off. But it doesn't quite say how. It says the risks of behavioural impacts. This is a science paper, by the way, or a paper published in the journal Science. It will throw them off. 
and uh, risk of behavioural impacts on marine animals. And I imagine, you know, the fish will start complaining about noisy neighbours, ringing the environmental health people at the council, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, Nick, let's uh, hit our last story. And uh, this is uh, the big dog's favourites uh, working out like a dog. Nick, take it away. Yeah, Daily Mail, who let the dogs out? Personal trainer says running on all fours for hours each day has made him fitter than ever and helped him beat joint pain. Although, sadly, he has now got worms and um, <laughs> oh he is going to die around age 11 as well, which is unfortunate. But, um, yeah, he's basically become a dog. And if you just throw a stick for him, he runs incredibly fast. I think fast. we've got a video. Let's take a oh, look. brilliant. So much is social life. <laughs> no. Quite. Uh, what an what a, what a inspiring uh, video that is. Um, and a great story to finish on. Absolutely. Um, I by, love by the way, I, I think it's important that we uh, actually plug something that's very, very special happening in August because this comedy legend, Simon Fanshawe, is at the Edinburgh Festival, Fringe, at the Assembly, which is a top venue, which means your career is going really well. Uh, the show is called The Power of Difference at the Assembly Bijou on the 19th to the 23rd of August Inclusive, you famously won the Perrier Award. Was that three decades ago? Well, uh, the last time I performed at Edinburgh was a couple of years after the Perrier, and it was 30 years ago. And when I performed 30 years ago, it was at 10 o'clock at night, smoke, booze, you know. These ones at 2.30 in the afternoon. How civilised. Isn't that so nice? You can, you'll be in you know, the pub by four. We'll have a lunch. You'll be a nap by four. Yeah, definitely. Well, look, it will Thank be you. unmissable because... We are in the presence of greatness, comedy, royalty, no less. Simon Fanshawe at the Edinburgh Fringe. Do check it out, uh, assemblyfestival.com. It will sell out. And of course, Nick Dixon will sell out. He always does. Thanks for listening to Headliners, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode again. And if you enjoyed it, leave me a nice comment. Speak to you at the same time tomorrow for the paper review that's never boring. 